0: Could we soon see the end of travel misery caused by striking French air traffic controllers? Is there really one region in France where the soil is saturated with gems? And why don't the French like to talk about money? If you want to know the answers to these questions and much more about what's going on in France right now, then stay tuned to this latest episode of Talking France, brought to you by The Local. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined by the editorial team in Paris, Emma Pearson and Jen Mansfield, and our politics expert, John Litchfield, will join us on the line from Normandy. Emma, Jen, and John, good to have you back with us again, and welcome to all our listeners. Busy week, guys. Jen, you've been at the Prefecture this week. What have you been doing there?
1: Uh, I got my titre de séjour renewed.
0: Fantastic. Congratulations. Is it all smooth?
1: It was- somewhat smooth (laughs) how long have we
0: got you for now jen
1: well this one expires in june which uh was a mistake so (laughs) i'm gonna have to deal with the prefecture again shortly
0: brilliant oh good luck with that emma we need to plug a questionnaire to listeners don't we uh, yeah, tell, us what the, this, uh, tell us what this is about, please.
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, so this is the special episode that we're planning over Christmas that will be made up entirely of questions from our listeners. So if it's anything you want to know about France, the French, French culture, French food, French wine, we love talking about that. Anything at all. Just fill in our questionnaire. Tell us your question and we will do our best to answer it.
0: Yeah. Politics questions. We'll try and get John to answer them. Of course, that questionnaire will be in the show notes and it will be in the article on our website, thank you to those who filled it in so far. We've had some interesting feedback, actually, guys. I was called smart-assed and medium-knowledgeable by someone.
2: That's very good for you. That I was, was a bit, a bit disappointed best feedback, yeah. smart-ass,
0: but medium-knowledgeable,
2: I'm yeah, with that. Yeah. take that.
0: Never been called that again. <laughs> anyway, listen, thank you to anybody who takes the time to fill in that survey. Shall we move on? Now, here's a story you will have heard many times. French air traffic controllers called a strike on Monday that led to the delays and cancellations for hundreds of flights around Europe. It caused familiar frustration for thousands of airline passengers and pushed up the blood pressure of Ryanair Chief Michael O'Leary once again. It's an all-too-familiar story in France in recent years, but Emma, could there be some good news for airline passengers hiding behind this latest strike?
2: There could be, yes. A new law has been adopted by the Assemblée Nationale which should limit the disruption of future strikes by air traffic controllers because what it does is it requires individual staff members to give 48 hours notice of their intention to strike. Now, this is the same rule that's already in place for staff on French railways and on the Paris public transport network. And what it basically does is it allows bosses to create a kind of strike timetable with the number of employees that they will have in on day. So at the moment when the French air traffic controllers are on strike, the Civil Aviation Authority cancels a certain percentage of flights based on the strike days. But it's really just a guess because they don't actually know how many people will be out on strike. And obviously they kind of err on the side of caution when they're deciding how many flights to cancel. So this new law, it won't prevent future strikes from air traffic controllers, but it does mean that there'll probably be fewer flights cancelled on strike days and therefore a better chance of your journey continuing without disruption.
0: So in short, they're basically cutting too many flights in the past because they don't have a really clear idea of how many air traffic controllers are on strike.
2: Exactly. Yeah. They can't do like a detailed strike timetable like you get on the railways or Paris Public Transport mm. Network on strike days.
0: Okay. Now, as you can imagine, air traffic controllers are pretty unhappy about this change. We spoke to one to get his opinion. Do you want to know what he said? Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess he's not very happy with it. No. Well, he started with classic, you know, which is fair enough, because different unions have different stances on this new law. But their basic argument is it impinges on their right to strike, or in other words, their right to strike effectively, and therefore weakens their ability to negotiate effectively at the next dispute. One thing he pointed out was that unlike SNCF workers, air traffic controllers are subject to minimum service requirements during a strike and can be requisitioned by bosses to ensure that minimum service. Unions argue this minimum service, plus the new rule to give 48 hours notice that you referred to, Emma, is a double constraint on their right to strike and will lead to abusive practices by the authorities. And he wanted to remind listeners that when they do strike, they're not paid, they lose money, so they're doing it for a reason and they're not just doing it to annoy holidaymakers. Emma, the MP behind the move, Damien Adam, tweeted... That's the end of last minute cancellations of flights. He's going a bit far, isn't he? We don't expect French air traffic controllers to stop striking altogether, do we?
2: No, probably not. I, th- I would sort of point out that I'm not sure what union your mate is in, but the largest union representing French air traffic controllers is actually not against this move. They're fine with it. They they don't see it as an impingement on the right to strike, but some of the smaller, more radical unions have sort of seen it as that. So yep. again, there's a difference of opinion and c'est compliqué, as, as your friend says. But yes, probably not the end of strikes uh, in total. As I said, this is the same rule that's been in place for SNCF staff and staff on the Paris Public Transport Network since 2007. And as we've seen, they managed to strike pretty often, even uh, even with this rule in place. So I don't think we'll be seeing an end to strike-related flight disruption. Although in better news, that largest union representing air traffic controllers that I talked about, they have declared what they call an Olympic truce. So they say they won't strike again until after the Games next summer.
0: Now, look, the right to strike, let's talk about that. It's in the French constitution, right?
2: It is, yeah. Although actually, it wasn't added to the constitution until 1946 under the left-wing coalition government after World War II. And when I started reading it, there are actually more sort of caveats and conditions than you might think. The actual line, it guarantees the right to strike exercised within the framework of laws which regulate it. So, you know, it's not like a blank check to just down tools whenever you feel like it, especially for the public sector. So workers in the private sector, like us, have fewer limits. They can call the strike without giving any advance notice, and they don't have to engage in negotiations with the boss first. Workers in the public sector are a bit more restricted, and that's really because the public sector includes jobs that are vital for day-to-day life, such as emergency services.
0: And it's those public sector strikes that is why France is kind of has this reputation for striking. Is do all public sector workers in France have the right to strike? Then can riot police or army down tools?
2: No, there are some groups who are banned from striking altogether. All of them in the public sector, and those are employees for whom striking would disrupt quote the obligation to provide continuity in public service. So those ones who are banned from striking are members of the military, and that includes firefighters in the city of Paris and Marseille who are technically in the military, police officers and gendarmes. Although actually the The municipal police, who are employed by local authorities, they can strike, but gendarmes cannot. Magistrates, prison officers, and any employees at the interior ministry whose work is considered vital for communication or handling information or data. Other employees can strike, but they must uh, ensure a minimum service level is provided, like we mentioned, and that would be uh, hospital employees, workers in the nuclear sector for obvious safety-related reasons, and staff at state-run TV and radio stations. And there are also people who are required to give this 48 hours notice. Railway workers, as we talked about, teachers who are in maternelle or elementaire schools, but not secondary schools, and in the future, air traffic controllers will also have to give this 48 hours notice.
0: Okay, final question for you, Emma, before we bring in John on the line from Normandy. Does the French government have the power to ban certain strikes or order striking workers back on the job?
2: It does, yeah. um, It's rare, but it does happen. If we want to be specific about it, this is Article L11112 of the Defence Code. It says that a strike can be halted or banned in the case of a threat affecting part of the country... A sector of national life or a sector of the population. You might remember actually the government used this power, what they call the power of requisition, to order striking oil refinery workers back to work in autumn last year. They were blockading oil refineries for weeks, filling stations were running dry, you couldn't fill up your car, and in the end the government did use its power of requisition and forced them back to work. But it is fairly rare that that happens. But honestly, the biggest limit on strike action in France is really a practical one rather than a legal one, and it's money. As your mate pointed out earlier, workers are not paid when they're on strike, so long Long-running strikes are quite hard to sustain. What usually happens is that more and more employees return to work when they decide that they can't take the financial hit any longer and the strike becomes gradually less effective. And that's what we saw during the 2019 transport strikes. They ran for almost two months, but they sort of gradually got less and less disruptive as time went on and more people went back to work.
0: Let's bring in John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, we're talking about strikes. Now, even in France, when they disrupt people's lives, their commutes – Uh, or ruin people's holidays, is the right to strike regarded as sacrosanct here?
3: Yes, up to a point. I think there's enormous tolerance, even support for social movements in France, which goes beyond what you see in other countries. I mean, you know, five years ago, the Gilets jaunes they had something like 70% support in the country, way beyond the regions of the country and the social categories in which from which they came. It's almost as if France sort of likes the idea of any kind of punch-up with its government, whether it's sort of directly involved or not. It strikes is a bit different. I mean, I think, you know, people who rely on trains to come to work in, in the Great Conurbations, especially especially... especially Paris, do get completely fed up with the sort of repetitive strikes on the SNCF and the RATP. And I think there is a lot of Growing intolerance of that. And there is supposedly, uh, there are supposedly laws in place for, for minimum service and so on, which don't seem to be entirely effective. So I think, yes, for social movements up to a point for strikes, but I think it's beginning to change.
0: John, we're looking ahead to the Paris Olympics. One of the unions has declared a kind of truce ahead of the Olympics, you know, vowing not to take part in any strikes. Do you really see the Olympics passing off, you know, peacefully without any strike disruption from the French unions who, you know, let's face it, do like to take advantage of a big event? It causes as much travel chaos, for example, as possible.
3: Yeah, and you may remember that in, within when the pension dispute was at its height earlier this year, there were threats that the, the Olympics would be taken hostage by some of the more militant unions, and they threatened to take other things hostage. Nothing came of it. So I don't know. It's a bit early to say on the Olympics what the issues will be at the time. I mean, a part of the problem is that the unions in, in France, as you know, are very fragmented. There is no one trade union congress or AFL-CIO like in the US. and the UK, there are, depending on how you count them, but there are at least eight different trade union federations of different political and uh, militancy levels. And it's difficult to believe that the more militant ones, CGT, food and so on, force of the air, won't try and take advantage in some industries. So I suspect there will be some unpleasantness and, and disruption, but, uh, you know, the disrupting completely the Olympics? No, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, the air traffic controllers have an amazing power in France, whether they will use it. And just because one of their unions has said they won't doesn't necessarily mean that others won't.
0: Thanks, John. Good to hear from you. And we'll be back with you later in the show. Most MPs around the world are used to going into Parliament in the same fixed place, whether it's the Assemblée Nationale in Paris or the Reichstag in Berlin. But MEPs, members of the European Parliament, are different. They have to move around because their Parliament moves around between Brussels in Belgium and Strasbourg in eastern France. Jen, tell us more about this strange situation and why MEPs are in the news here in France.
1: So we're talking about MEPs or members of the European Parliament, like you said, this week, because they just got a very nice new place to work. It's called the, Sim- the Simone Vale Building in Strasbourg, and it's named after the Holocaust survivor, feminist and French politician. It was a pretty big event, uh, the inauguration of this building. France's prime minister, Elizabeth Bourne, attended, and so did the president of the European Parliament, Roberta Metzola. For France, the addition of this building was very important because it represents the continued importance of the French city of Strasbourg as an EU capital.
0: Why is it so important for France?
1: Well, because they host an important institution in the EU, which is the Parliament. Normally, when you think of the EU, you think of Brussels. And that's because a lot of the EU is in Brussels. But the EU has its institutions straddled between a few different cities. So Luxembourg, Frankfurt, Strasbourg, and Brussels. Technically, there isn't one official capital. And Strasbourg has been the location of the EU Parliament's monthly plenary sessions since 1952. Basically, it's where the EU Parliament votes on important laws and treaties. And before that, in 1949, it was the location of the Council of Europe. And then later on, in 1992, the EU made it the official permanent seat of the Parliament. Now, even though Strasbourg is home to the Parliament, the MEPs really only go there once a month for important votes and debates. For France, it's really important to keep the EU in Strasbourg, partially because it is France's second most important city for diplomacy after Paris, so it has economic and political significance, but also because the city itself is symbolic both for France and Europe. It's located in Alsace, uh, which has been passed off between France and Germany for hundreds of years. And after World War II, Strasbourg really became this representation of post-war reconciliation, which eventually allowed for the creation of the EU.
0: Interesting. Now, look, this idea of having Strasbourg as a kind of shared EU capital is not to everybody's liking, Jen. Some people are very much against it.
1: Yeah. And that has to do with budget concerns. Even though the EU does not officially have a capital, Brussels is where most of the action happens because it's the seat of the European Commission and the Council of Europe. Plus, parliament committee meetings are mostly held there and most EU officials from the MEPs to parliamentary assistants uh, spend the majority of their time in Brussels. As of 2019, it cost 114 million euro per year to shift MEPs from Belgium to France once a month and a 2013 study found that the money spent Sending the MEPs to Strasbourg once a month was equivalent to six percent of the parliament's budget or one percent of the EU's total administrative budget.
0: Right. So they're spending a lot of money to get these MEPs to Strasbourg, though they don't always end up in the right place, Jen. We've got a funny story about this.
1: Yeah, I think you're referring to this incident where a train taking MEPs from Brussels to Strasbourg accidentally was sent to Disneyland in Mar-la-Vallée, uh, which is near Paris, instead of Strasbourg last month. Sadly, they did not get their fairy tale ending. The train was rerouted back in the direction of Strasbourg.
0: Interesting. I know John, who joins us again on the line from Normandy, has a lot of experience. He was a Brussels correspondent for many years. John, have people always complained about having to go from Brussels to Strasbourg?
3: Yes, they did. And I think mostly was some of your MPs didn't like it. They felt that putting them out there for the plenary sessions every month was a way of kind of marginalising them and keeping the away from the real centres of power. Uh, you know, as a journalist, I took a rather different view, and it, it's, it's a long time ago now, but I, I took the view then that actually the Euro MPs were wrong about that, that because Strasbourg was a separate kind of identity almost to Brussels. It gave the Parliament a sort of identity that it wouldn't have if it was just part of the morass of, of European institutions in Brussels. And, you know, it also meant that if, you, as a journalist you went to Strasbourg, then you, you cover the European Parliament. If it was going on while you were in Brussels, you would be distracted by the much more often, much more vital, interesting things going on in the Commission or the Council of Ministers. So it seemed to me not in the interest of the Parliament to move its full plenary sessions back to Brussels, even though its headquarters is in Brussels and committees are in Brussels, it meets its, when it meets in plenary session for one week every month, it meets in Strasbourg. But it, that, it seems to me still that gives the parliament a kind of identity and, and, and a sort of, almost a strength as being a sort of separate institution like that, which it wouldn't have if it got sort of dropped into the marsh of, of all the different institutions in Brussels, which I think many people outside the EU bubble find difficult to understand.
0: Can you see the French ever accepting that, that parliament moves entirely to Brussels and ditches Strasbourg?
3: never has. It's always kind of thrown all the toys out of the pram when that's been suggested. I mean, you know, the the vetoes of a kind still exist in the European Union, and uh, France could declare that to be a vital national interest, that it has one large institution of the European Union within its territory, and basically that is the only one at the moment. So, no, I don't see it ever happening, quite frankly. I, I think, you know, it may not make that much sense seen from the outside. It may cost a lot of money. But you know when there is a perfectly good hemicycle that you can have sessions in Brussels. You don't need to go to Strasbourg, but it doesn't seem to me that's going to change at any time soon.
0: Right, let's talk about hidden gems. Not of the off-the-beaten track parts of France kind of hidden gem, but real hidden jewels in one part of the country. There was a line in a story this week written by our friends at AFP that caught our attention quite abruptly, it's fair to say. The story was about a one million euro court case where a French farmer was suing his neighbour because he claims they went hunting for sapphires on his side of the river. But the line in the story that got us excited was this, the subsoil in one region of France is saturated with gems. Emma, this had you packing your bags and booking train tickets. But we really need to explain this more. Where in France can I go and just scoop up sapphires out of the soil?
2: Well, really nowhere because you have to own the land uh, or the bank of the river, which is kind of what this court case is all about. Mm -hmm. But there is an area where sapphires can be just scooped up and it is Auvergne, the very dramatic mountainous area in central France. I said mountains, but they're really dormant volcanoes and it's the unique geographic feature of these long extinct volcanoes that have created the sapphires there is a little bit of commercial mining in Auvergne but there are some areas where you can find them in the rock face or on riverbeds and just pick them out although for legal reasons I should say that the gems belong to whoever owns the land so please don't go to Auvergne
0: and steal sapphires that's really annoying okay so if I can't make my fortune as a gem hunter is there any other reason to go to the Auvergne?
2: yeah there's loads Um, it's a stunning area it's really beautiful like I said it's full of sort of dormant volcanoes and they make this very dramatic slightly weird and haunting type landscape really beautiful the other reason to go is that it's kind of a little bit off the beaten track it's not really a well-known touristy area mostly because it's a little bit hard to get to it's not well served by the train network and driving takes quite a long time because there aren't many auto routes and it's very mountainous and in fact it's like quite a lot of central france that way it's sort of the forgotten bit of france but i think it's well worth making the effort to go there's absolutely loads of outdoor activities there's mountain climbing there's hiking cycling some extreme sports like white water rafting paragliding lots of places to camp i think you've camped There, right?
0: I have, yeah, it was terrible, terrible experience. (laughs) Good, good. You're really helping
2: to sell over. I got
0: chronic diarrhea, it was atrocious. (laughs) Yeah, Thanks for that Don't let that put you off Carry on Incredible uh, detail yeah. yes. Nothing to do with the overland It's a lovely <laughs> region Carry on
2: If you go there in the winter Once you've avoided Ben and his diarrhoea um, You can go ice fishing uh, Luge dog sledding Or alpine skiing On a volcano If you're lazy Like me I don't do any of that kind of stuff But the main town of Clermont-Ferrand Is a really nice town It has a very good rugby team Which obviously is the reason I was there And it's also the historic home Of the Michelin tyre company And there's a uh, a Sort of Michelin world Exhibition museum In the town centre Which mm. looks kind of fun
0: Look every region in France is famous for its food is it's not its regional food what about the Auvergne cheese it's all
2: about the cheese in uh, cheese in Auvergne in fact a quarter of all of France's AOP cheeses come from the Auvergne some of the famous ones are Cantal wow. Uh Saint-Nectaire, which is beautiful, and mm. a Bleu d'Auvergne, which is the blue, wha? blue cheese. And then, of course, there's Aligo, the delicious, stretchy mashed potato filled with cheese. That's the regional speciality of Auvergne. If you're feeling a little bit unhealthy after eating all that cheese, there are also loads of spa towns. Uh, Vichy, probably the most famous one, but lots of others. And there are more than 100 spring and mineral waters, most famously Volvic.
0: Wow, you sold it to me. I think it's fair to say Auvergne is a massively underrated region of France. Are there any downsides, though?
2: Well, I think the main one is kind of what I said it's really quite hard to get to, especially if you don't drive. And the other one maybe is that like French people will tell you that Auvergnats, i.e. people from Auvergne, have a reputation for being stingy and maybe sly and duplicitous. Although I'm sure that's not true, any more than it's true than people from Yorkshire are grumpy and mean. Mm,
0: I'm not going to make you answer this now because we're going to have more on regional stereotypes later in this show. Now, if you want to make friends in France with the locals, perhaps it's a good idea to be slightly careful about the subjects you talk about with them. Well, so as not to make them feel awkward or even spark any Gallic temper. Jen, you've been looking into the conversation topics French workers like to discuss at the coffee machine. And I happen to mention some taboos or subjects that people would be better off avoiding in France. Tell us more, Jen.
1: Yeah. So the researchers in this study that I was looking at, they interviewed about a thousand French workers this past October. And they pinned down three topics that people really go out of their way to avoid. And shockingly, none of them had to do with ordering a well-done steak or drinking red wine at Aperot instead of dinner. The first taboo was money. Overall, 68% of respondents said that pay is a topic they avoid, particularly in the workplace. And it's fair to say that this taboo extends outside of the office in France as well. As of 2022, eight in 10 French people said that they felt being rich is frowned upon. And the idea of sharing your salary or asking other people about theirs which might not necessarily be rude in the U.S., is definitely not well-received in France. We've also interviewed some French people about salaries. One Parisian salesperson, Alexa, told us, I would feel ashamed to tell someone how much money I make, especially if it is less than them. And Eleanor, a waitress, told us, I would not want someone intruding on my privacy.
0: Mm, I'm really interested to know the reasons why the French don't like to talk about money. Jen, have you got any for us?
1: Yeah. So a French sociologist called Janine Massus-Laveau wrote a book about the French relationship with money, and she had a couple of theories. She linked money being taboo back to France's historic Catholicism. So in contrast to countries with higher levels of Protestantism, where wealth might have been seen as a, a gift from God, she said that Catholicism honed in on greed being a deadly sin. So people tended to see personal enrichment negatively. She also talked about the leftovers of quote-unquote peasant culture. Uh, historically, the poor peasantry in France would hide cash in their homes. So people tried to avoid talking about money in order to stop their neighbors from getting jealous and maybe robbing them. <laughs> and then there is the influence of Marxism. And she said that this has left French people with the general idea that profit is not good.
0: Jen, you're American. Do you think Americans are more comfortable talking about money than the French, for example?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. I actually looked at this and I found a study that said 71% of Americans feel more absent admiration than resentment toward the rich. And six and 10 Americans said they think money can buy happiness. I mean, in the US, I wouldn't necessarily go up to a random person and ask them their salary either. I still think that's relatively taboo. But generally, I found that Americans are more open to discussing like how much they paid for something or showing their wealth a bit more visibly, or maybe talking about ways that they are efficient with their money to maximize wealth. And that's like less common, I found, in France.
0: Okay, interesting. Next taboo, Jen, that people the next don't talk one, about in France.
1: The next one is sex. Sex? It, yeah.
0: We don't talk about sex on this podcast, Jen.
1: <laughs> yeah we are (laughs) oh
0: my god go on then
1: over half of the workers in the survey uh, felt uncomfortable talking about sex and relationships which might be a little surprising for a country known for love romance and sexual openness and if you're thinking okay talking about The stuff at work would understandably be very uncomfortable. You might be interested to learn that a 2020 study found that 39% of French people generally avoid chatting about these intimate topics. So not just in the workplace. In contrast to just 20% of people in Spain, usually sex falls into the vie privée category in France, the private life, which is usually off-limits unless you're close with someone. So for a long time, actually, there was a tradition that media and tabloids in France would avoid getting into the sex lives and scandals of politicians and celebrities simply because of that vie privée barrier. But even if people tended to avoid chatting about their vie privée, the French are still quite open-minded about sex. France has topped the charts for having the most people, 94%, who found no moral issue with sex before marriage. And it was actually the first country to decriminalize homosexuality in 1791.
0: Okay, we should put this into perspective. The study you mentioned just earlier, Jen, also found that 52% of Brits avoid talking about their sex lives. So the French definitely aren't the most prudish. And one more taboo you've got for us, Jen. This is a big one.
1: Yeah, the third subject that they said people avoid is religion and secularism and if you spent any time in france you probably know this subject is pretty taboo religion has been a heated topic for hundreds of years decreasing the power and the reach of the catholic church was an important aspect of the french revolution and in 1905 France implemented the policy of laïcité, state secularism, which is still in effect today. And this concept of the vie privée, the private life, comes back in when we discuss religion. It's seen as something to be kept in the private sphere. So, for example, you rarely see a French politician discussing their religion publicly or on the campaign trail. Laïcité, uh, state secularism, is a, an important ideal in France. So religious clothing or symbols like crosses, hijabs, kippahs are banned from public institutions like schools. And public officials like police officers or firefighters are not allowed to wear them on the job. There are even some rules that allow companies to restrict the practice of religion, private companies, I mean, and that's neutrality clauses. And these can be added to contracts uh, if an individual or a collective religious practice undermines respect for individual rights and freedoms in the company. So take proselytizing in the office, for example, or based on the needs of the company's business. So maybe related to sanitary or safety regulations.
0: Mm, okay. What about any different taboos for foreigners in France when it comes to talking to the locals? I've often found that if they're all criticizing some aspect of France, as soon as I jump in, whoa, 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 whoa no, foreigners aren't allowed to criticize France, especially French food. I, I remember telling a group of French people that thought Italian cuisine was actually better than the French. And once they'd got over the shock of me saying it, they all actually agreed. But it was the fact that I said it, they were just like, you know, they were really upset about it. Emma, any taboo subjects that we shouldn't talk about with the French? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it's like it's like you say, I mean, it's kind of like family, isn't it? You know, I can criticise my family, but if you criticise my family, then we're going outside for a punch up. And I think it's kind of the same principle with, with, you know, with France. Like French people complain about their own country all the time. But maybe as a, as a foreigner, you should just be a bit more polite about anything French.
0: Noted, Jen, don't criticise Emma's family. I'll try not yeah. to. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Really interesting stuff. Let's move on to our final topic. Most countries in the world tend to have their own stereotypes for different regions. For example, in the UK, people from the north are known for their warmth, charm, intelligence, friendliness and good looks.
2: This is hard science, by the way, people,
0: 100% accurate. Whereas those in the South are reputed for being cold, not very funny. In Germany, Bavarians are labelled conservative and people from Hamburg haughty. But what about France? Emma, you mentioned earlier the reputation the people of Auvergne have for being stingy. Or, to use a French expression, avoir des oursins dans les poches. I think that's have sea urchins in your pockets. Is that because they're spiky and you don't want to put your hands in? Uh, Yeah, that's it, exactly. It's like people who don't want to put
2: their hands in their pocket to get some money out.
0: Yeah, avoir des oursins dans les poches, as they say in French. Is that really true?
2: Well, I don't think it's particularly true for everyone from from Auvergne, obviously. But the area was historically quite poor. So I think that's probably where it comes from. And yeah, I mean, obviously, like all s- countries, there are stereotypes about certain areas and they might be true for some people, but not for others. But I think these stereotypes are interesting because quite often they might tell you something about the history of the areas. And also, it's just useful to know, like, if you tell your French friend that you're visiting a certain area, they'll tell you to pack an umbrella, for example. So it's good to know what these stereotypes are.
0: Right. Let's take a trip around France then. Let's start with the South. Southwest used to live there. So tell us if these are true. People in the Southwest are lazy, but friendly and eat a lot of cassoulet.
2: Um, Well, maybe half true. I certainly found people in the southwest very friendly there. But honestly, I kind of think that's more to do with living in a a small town or a village compared to a big city. So when I first moved in, my neighbour invited me around for dinner. That, I have to say, has never happened in, uh, in Paris. But yeah, I think they are a friendly lot down there. Lazy is kind of unfair. It's a stereotype that gets thrown around a lot for the sort of hotter areas around the Mediterranean. So the south of France, Italy, Spain as well. It is true that in the southwest you're more likely to see shops and offices doing the full 12 till 2 closure at lunchtime. But said against that, Nouvelle Aquitaine, which is the region that covers the Southwest, that actually has the third highest GDP in France. So clearly some people are working and generating some wealth there. And cassoulet, yes, it is a sort of traditional dish of the region. It's delicious. It's a very hearty sort of meat stew involving either duck or goose, white beans and a Toulouse sausage. But people certainly don't eat it all the time because it's really heavy. You, know, you need to properly work up an appetite for that. And it's also very much a winter thing. So if you go to a town like Carcassonne and you see restaurants serving cassoulet in the summer, then they're really Mm. just for tourists.
0: Right, let's move on. Marseille. The rest of France have some pretty negative stereotypes about folk from Marseille. Criminals, terrible drivers. Women who are trashy and overdressed those aren't my words Emma but you can explain this Um
2: yeah I mean uh, Marseille does have a bit of a reputation for crime it actually has a lower overall crime rate than Paris but it does have some rough areas and it also has a real problem with drug trafficking gangs which is mainly just a, because of where it is you know it's the entry point into France for a lot of drugs that come up through the Mediterranean but these types of crimes you know they they get a lot of media attention they're quite dramatic but they do only tend to affect certain areas most of the city is perfectly safe it's popular with tourists it's got a really beautiful coastline. Absolutely. I would recommend people go there. <laughs> the one about people being like badly dressed or trashy, uh, I have to say, I didn't really notice it that much when I was there, but it is a stereotype, I think. I was watching a, a baking show on TV and the bakers were challenged to create a bake themed on Marseille, and one of them just like made a cake in the shape of a makeup box and said, Oh, well, you know, Marseille women wear loads of makeup. Yeah. There is even actually a word, a cagaul, which means a woman who's kind of extrovert, loud, and a little trashy, but it's pretty pejorative, so I wouldn't recommend using it to people. I think maybe partially it just becomes, there's a really popular uh, reality TV show called Les Marseillais, which is somewhat in the style of like the Real Housewives show in the US, or maybe the only way is Essex. And I think that maybe exaggerates the whole thing about Marseille.
0: Okay, good. Let's go to Northwestern France. Jen, you've spent a lot of time in Brittany. What's the first stereotype you hear about the region?
1: Well, (laughs) I've heard the stereotype that Breton people drink a lot. I mean, what else is there to do on a rainy day, (laughs) Uh, but this one isn't so accurate. Apparently the cliche actually goes back to the 18th century when Brittany was considered to be a place where drunkenness was not taboo and people partied hard at festivals. But these days, if you compare the Breton with other parts of France, you've got about 10.7% of people who drink alcohol every day, which is a bit higher than the national average, but it's still lower than other regions like Occitanie or Nouvelle-Aquitaine.
0: Are they drinking because of the weather that you refer to, Jen? Well,
1: it does rain a lot in Brittany. <laughs> the region is home to the French city where it rains the most, Brunelis, which is located in the Finistère department. And between 1991 and 2020, the city got an average of 172 days of rain per oh, year. So awesome. quite a lot.
0: Okay. We need to talk about Paris, Jen. Stereotypes?
1: Uh, yeah, there are too many to choose from. So I-, I would say foreigners and French people, they both have their own stereotypes about Paris. The one that I hear a lot is uh, Parisians are all stylish. I mean, there certainly are some stylish Parisians and I personally would feel self-conscious if I went to the grocery store in sweatpants uh, because people usually put on at least like a pair of jeans or something to leave the house. But like stylish, I don't know. It's so subjective. And there are plenty of Parisians who probably wouldn't classify themselves as being stylish. I think a big part of the reason we think this has to do with the fact that Paris hosts Fashion Week and generally because of marketing from France to get tourists. So the city of Paris has really put a lot of time and money into marketing itself as the capital of luxury and style.
0: Jen, you're missing the biggest stereotype, the one, the elephant in the room. Parisians are rude, are they not?
1: I hate this stereotype, though. I think it's so unfair. Personally, I have never found Parisians to be particularly rude. I would say they're on par with people in any major city who are just busy and trying to get to wherever they're going.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, like I say, when I lived in the Southwest, my neighbors never stopped telling me about how terrible and rude Parisians were. But I've really not had very many examples of rude Parisians. I think most of them are perfectly polite and nice. Apart from the woman who runs the hot dog stand outside Stade de France, she is just rude. Uh, do
0: you want to give us a bit more description about her? So we she can knows. She
2: knows she if knows. she's listening to this podcast, she knows.
0: You, did she insult your family? <laughs> You've had a row with her, haven't you, Emma? A little bit, yeah. Right, let's finish this quick fire round off with a trip round France. I'm going to give you guys uh, the name of a region and you're going to give me the stereotype very quickly. Let's start with the shti. That's the name for people from northern France they're known for being?
2: Kind of like hicks, yokels, bit inbred. Drink a lot. Right.
0: Um, Friendly?
2: Yeah, not uh, not unfriendly. There's okay. a really funny film called Bienvenue L'Eschti, yeah. which is about a man who's sent from the south to the uh, de which is the L'Eschti region, to work, which kind of covers all of the stereotypes about people from that area. Yeah,
0: I think it's the one region they do get a lot of stick from others in France, don't they? A bit well, like the partly of I jokes, think they?
2: their accent is quite hard to mm. understand as well, so people mm. say that they're like thick or yokels because they can't understand them. But really it's just that the accent is different.
0: Okay, maybe one for you, Emma Levandiennes or les Vendiennes, I think I pronounced that right, on the western coast of France, are known for being? Uh, yeah,
2: very Catholic. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, the symbol for the region is the is the Sacred Heart. Right. They're Catholic, quite socially conservative. They're the ones who rebelled against the French Revolution. They didn't want more freedom. They wanted to go back to the old ways.
0: I was looking into Alsace. Do you know what Alsatians are famous for? You probably you, you guess this easily. It's in Eastern France. They're well known for being cold and a bit closed. Well, a bit German, really. Or fi- I fine mean-
2: I mean, they basically are German, yeah, really, yeah, aren't
0: they? It's, bit, it's obviously, it's a stereotype. There's also a, a stereotype of them all having big ears. Jen, you've been there recently. <laughs> this is this true?
1: Yeah, I did visit Alsace a couple of weeks ago and I have to say, this is kind of true.
0: What? <laughs> You noticed know the size of their ears?
1: I, I did, actually. I won't say any names, but I know a certain Al Saschen who does have some big ears. <laughs> oh, right.
0: I mean, I looked into this briefly, but it was. I thought it was, you know, I found that it was down to a joke by their neighbours in Lorraine, you know, to poke fun at them. But apparently there's some truth in it, right? No one better to talk about the regional stereotype in Normandy than John Litchfield, who joins us once again from Northern France. John, any regional stereotypes around France that you've found to be true? And tell us about those Normans.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a big divide between Paris and the provinces. I mean, you know, I think foreigners tend to sort of judge France and the French by the reception they receive in Paris, which is not always warm and uh, encouraging. And, and it's much different, I think, almost in all regions of France. People are much more welcoming to, to foreigners, tourists and so on than they are in Paris. Northern France, friendlier than the South? No, not necessarily, I don't think. I think that the, the South Earth can actually be extraordinarily warm. It is a very, very disparate place in France. I mean, the region I know best, of course, is Normandy, where I live. Outside Normandy, the reputation of the Normans is being people that can never say exactly what they mean or never make up their minds. And The Bretons call them the we norm, rather than the Normans because they always say we uh, uh, there. And there is a element of truth about that, about the Normans. The other thing I find interesting about the Normans is they always seem to be arguing. Whenever you hear two Normans speak, they always have a sort of tone of argument, even if they're talking in a perfectly friendly way about a very sort of banal subject like what the weather has to be. They have a sort of very kind of aggressive tone about the, the, their talk in, in conversation, which can, can be a bit off-putting when you don't know Normandy well. But even so, apparently they don't, in the end, at the end of that conversation, easily make up their minds whether it's sunny or rainy
0: because they're, they're Normans. And they can't say we or not. Interesting. John, have you become more aggressive and, and argumentative since you've lived in Normandy?
3: Well, I'm speaking French, yeah. (laughs) You have
0: to. Thanks, John. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. You'll find plenty of articles that we've referred to in the show notes and on the article on the website, as well as that survey uh, that I mentioned earlier. Would really appreciate if you took the time to fill it in. We'll be back with more Talking Points from France next week.